We'll be in John chapter 4 once again this morning as we continue on in our exposition of the Gospel of John. We go verse by verse, section by section, through this Gospel. We've entitled this series, That You May Believe. That is John's whole purpose. As you know, we've said it many times throughout our series in this, um, in this gospel. But that's his whole purpose, is to show, to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you will believe, and that in believing you will have eternal life. This morning we'll be looking at the topic of true worshipers. I just want to say here at the beginning that there's, there, there is so much in this passage. We really, truly could spend a good long time, several Sundays, just digging through what's going on here. But what I think might be most helpful for us is to kind of just get to the heart of what Jesus is doing here as he's speaking to this woman at the well. Many people have said throughout the centuries and the decades that we are all worshipers. It doesn't just mean that those who go to church, uh, you this morning, just you are worshipers, or only Christians are worshipers, but that all people are worshipers. We all worship something whether it be money or music, sports, our career, ministry, serving God, church. We all worship something. And the object of our worship will be seen in what we value above all else. That's what worship is. It is valuing and loving something above all else. And it involves both the mind and the heart. As the mind is filled with knowledge of the object of worship, it kindles the flames of love and adoration in the heart. And the result is exaltation. It is is worship. And outside of Christ, we worship false gods. We are idolaters. There's John Calvin, who I think probably said it best, that we, the human heart, is a perpetual factory of idols. That's a pretty graphic image that it puts in your mind, the human heart just pumping out idols. And if you really take a moment to think about it, that's true. We can idolize anything. We do idolize everything. We may no longer bow down before a carved image or a golden calf, but we are idolaters nonetheless. Not only do we bow down to false gods, but we also misunderstand what worship is. We think it is three or four songs that we sing at the beginning of a church service before the sermon. That's worship. So if we're thinking about it, we just had worship and now we're doing something else. That's not what worship is. If you look at your bulletin on the front inside page, it's the title at the very top is Worship Guide. And you'll notice that the only thing, it's not just the music under the title Worship Guide. It's everything that we do this morning falls under the purview of worship. That's what 
worship is. It is loving something with the heart that you are coming to know with the mind. Music has nothing to do with worship. We can use music to worship. Emotions have nothing to do with worship. We can experience emotions as we worship, but that is not what worship is. It's not lifting your hands and crying whenever the, 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 the chorus really starts to build. That's fine. I'm not here to attack those things, only to say that's not what worship is. Worship is not a style of music. It's not a location. It's none of these things. Everything we do, in fact, this morning is worship. We, we worship God through song. We also worship through prayer. If you give, you're, you're worshiping God through giving. You worship God through hearing the word, through, through praying. You worship God through the proclamation of his word. But you also worship God through responding to his word in either repentance or adoration, whatever is necessary. What we are doing right now then, my friends, is still worship. I love what John Piper called preaching. He called it expository exaltation, that it is the preacher worshiping God through the word in front of God's people. But this isn't a spectator sport where you just watch. You are taking part in the worship of God by hearing his word and by loving his word. The other aspect of worship that we commonly misunderstand is that, is that we think that worship is about us. And if you don't agree with that statement, go into a church and try to change the music. We think that worship is about us. Well, this is how we worship. We also forget about the fact that God cares about how he is worshipped. Did you know that? Ask Nadab and Abihu about it. They tried to worship God in their own particular way. Oh wait, you can't ask them because God struck them dead. Because they did not worship according to the way that was prescribed. So worship, God cares about how he is worshipped. Because worship is for him, it is unto him. Again, it's not about the emotional experience. It's not the goosebumps or your favorite song. Worship is about your mind being set on things above and your heart going therewith. And God cares about how this is done. He cares deeply about how this is done. But what's interesting is that this cannot be accomplished by human effort alone, for we are naturally, once again, predisposed to be idolatrous. We can worship our worship. We can worship the fact that we're so good at worshiping. We can worship the fact that we rose our hands and we cried a little bit. We can worship the fact that the music was awesome and the lights were down low and everything was great. And that's what we end up worshiping. We have a lot of things going on this morning that are called worship experiences. And God is not the one being worshiped. Friends, it can happen in sound churches. It can happen in false churches. It can happen everywhere. But the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of chapter 4 of John, is that God takes idolaters 
and he makes them worshipers of the true and living God. He gives them a desire to worship him, and he makes them able to worship him. That's good news. Because that means that we can actually come here, even though we are predisposed to idolatry and predisposed to setting up and propping up a false god and bowing at the foot of that god, we can come here and through the power of the Spirit, through the work of Jesus Christ, we can actually enter the presence of God and worship Him. That is the good news of the gospel. Is that God takes idolaters and makes them worshipers of the true and living God. And that, my friends, I believe, is one of the major themes of this section of Scripture that we have been looking at. John uses the, a, a word for worship 11 times in his gospel. Nine of those times is right here in the passage that we're looking at today. You don't need to stand. We're just going to walk through this together. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to continue to worship you, through the proclamation, the hearing, and the loving of your word. I pray that by the Spirit, you would enable me to speak clearly, and that you would enable all of us to hear directly from you through your word. We pray that you would uh, fix our worship and fix our eyes on you. May Christ be glorified in this place this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As you re recall, we began looking at this interaction between our Lord and the woman at the well last week. And we saw in their interaction that Jesus was offering her living water. He told her that if she drank from this water, she would never thirst again. Up to this point, it was clear that she didn't fully understand who she was talking to, nor did she truly understand what this man was talking about. What are you saying? Living water? What does that mean? And her statement in verse 15 looks very promising, doesn't it? Sir, give me this water. Amen. Hallelujah. We even ended last week's sermon that way. Amen. Hallelujah. Give me this water. Yes, that's how we should respond. But then she quickly shows that she is still in the dark, doesn't she? She asks for the living water Jesus offers her and says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Her mind is still on her physical thirst. She has yet to perceive the reality that Jesus is pointing to. There she is with the word become flesh, who offers her living water, who offers her the opportunity to have her greatest spiritual need met by offering her the Holy Spirit. And what does she say? Man, it would sure be great to not have to lug around this big bucket in the heat of the day anymore. Oh, that would be awesome. Yes, Give me that living water. I have to point out here at this point, John MacArthur makes an excellent point here, and it was just too good not to share it. But this is where a lot of people say, okay, now do you want to accept Jesus? 
Do you want to accept Jesus because you'll never have to be thirsty again? Do you, do you want, let's pray the prayer so that you can love Jesus. But she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand what's going on yet. She still has her mind set on things of the earth. She has yet to have her sinfulness revealed before a holy God and her need to be saved by this same holy God. She, she doesn't get it, but in so many instances in our world today, we would say, amen, hallelujah, you're a Christian now. And she would leave thinking that being a Christian was made up in having your physical needs met. That's not the gospel. She's not understanding that he's getting to something much deeper. Do you see the dullness here of the human heart? Do you see John's words from chapter 1, verse 10 playing out that he was in the world, the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him, the world didn't know him? Jesus understands this. He knows what's going on. That's why he doesn't just end the conversation right there and say, well, we'll see you in paradise, friend. He doesn't say that. He knows the dullness of the human heart. You remember at the end of chapter 2, it said, John told us that Jesus knew what was in all men, that he knew what was in the heart of men. He knows that she's not truly believing in him right now. He understands that she does not understand. So he makes this statement that seems to be out of left field, but the intention is here to dig deeper into her heart. He says, go, call your husband and come here. I have no husband. You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You can almost sense the way that this must have pierced right through her soul. Jesus displays how totally she knows this woman because he is God, and so he is omniscient. He doesn't just know that here she is in the middle of the day and then kind of trying to, tries to put some pieces together. He knows her past. Doesn't he? You've had five husbands. But he also knows what's going on in her life right now. The husband that you now have, the man that you now have is not your husband. You see how totally and perfectly Jesus knows this woman? You and I today, we tend to think that it's rude and mean to call sin, sin. But here's love incarnate saying, pointing out that she is an adulterer. Do you know what the penalty for adultery was under the law of Moses? Death. And she's just been exposed in the light of day, in the middle of the day. Love incarnate, my friends, pointing out her sinfulness. If we could only see the look on her face when Jesus so masterfully diagnosed the issue of her heart. D.A. Carson gives us some historical background on why it matters that she's had five husbands. He points out that rabbis at that time severely frowned upon more than three marriages. They severely frowned upon more than three. God said one, but we'll allow you three. But she's gone over that. But they severely would have disapproved. They would not have approved at all of a common law marriage, of living together with someone that you're not married to. That was adultery. Now, it's certainly possible that this woman was divorced by all of her husbands. That's possible. We're not given the exact details. 
But I think what's most likely is that she was a sexually immoral woman. Because she's gone through five different men, and she's now with another man who's not her husband. And as we talked about last week, she's hiding out in the middle of the day where nobody would be out there. She wants to be alone. She doesn't want to be seen. Why would she? That was a shame culture where they would publicly shame you. She was used to being shamed because of her past and because of her current situation. And so there she is trying to hide. And Jesus exposes her. God in the flesh exposes her heart. Jesus displays so much patience with this woman, though, doesn't he? She clearly has not understood who he is. We were told that he's tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty, it's hot. And yet, he has this perfect patience through all of her misunderstanding to walk this poor, sin-sick soul to the fountain of living water. Aren't you glad that he's patient with us that way? How many times did you hear the gospel before you actually believed? Aren't you glad that our Savior is long-suffering? I want to make sure that we don't miss what's going on here. As I said a bit ago, one of the main themes in this passage is worship, if not the main theme. It's such a prominent theme here because the chief purpose of salvation, the chief end of salvation is the worship of God. You read Ephesians chapter 1. And over and over again, we were elected before the foundation of the world. Why? To the praise of his glory. The passage that Jacob read a bit ago from 1 Peter, you are this holy nation, you're a chosen royal priesthood. Why? So that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The whole purpose of salvation is not just so that you miss hell, it's so that God is worshipped. You want to really see that on display, read through Revelation. You want to find the word worship over and over again? Look at the end goal of all of mankind. The end goal of all of human history. Worship, 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 over and over again. God saves us so that he would be glorified. We'll say more about worship as we move through this text, but for now let's make sure to see that as Jesus is seeking to make a true worshiper out of her, he exposes her heart to show that her heart does not worship God. And her heart is in pursuit of her felt needs or her sin. That's seen in her life of sexual immorality. But not only that, even her religion is worthless. She needs a new heart that has been satisfied by living water. And that will lead her to be a true worshiper. So exposing her heart, her sin, her frivolous worship, it's not just to make her feel bad as an end in, of its, in, in and of itself, it's to make her a true worshiper of God. So let's look at verse 19. Jesus exposes her frivolous worship. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in, in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This woman's finally beginning to understand that there's something a little bit different about this man who's speaking to her by this well. He's got to be a prophet. Only a prophet who has insight about her life like this has to have some kind of connection with God. Only a, only a prophet would know these things. Only someone who has some sort of connection with God would understand 
her past sin and her current sin. Perhaps she tries to recover a shred of dignity because she engages in this theological discussion to show maybe she isn't that bad. You know, I, I still worship. I might have a sketchy past, and yeah, maybe I don't make the best decisions even now, but I still worship God. So tell me, is it better to worship here on Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans say, or, or in Jerusalem, as you Jews say? I, I, I'm a worshiper. I worship God. Isn't that just like us sinners who try to reclaim some measure of goodness in our life. Well, I've done this. Yeah, I might have my mistakes and, and you know, I have my faults, my flaws, my hang-ups, you know. I, I don't not really sin. I I have hang-ups. But you know, I have a lot of good going for me. I pay my taxes. I I've won employee of the month. I'm a pretty good individual. And there we are, excusing our sin. If you had the opportunity to speak with a prophet, though, I would imagine that we would try to engage in some sort of theological discussion. Maybe there's real interest in her question here. So the Samaritan wants to know what this prophet has to say about which place is the right place to worship. Is it on Mount Gerizim or is it in Jerusalem? Well, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, the time is coming where it's not going to matter. It doesn't matter if it's here on this mountain or if it's in Jerusalem. I want you to notice that he says the hour is coming. What does that mean? This is something new. He's introducing something that is entirely new. The Jews had their specific ways of worship. The Samaritans had theirs. They were never to intertwine with one another, certainly not with other pagan nations. But the time is now coming where it's not going to matter where you worship. That means that the hour had not been there yet. This is new. This is human tendency, isn't it? To make worship about the external. That worship is confined to a location or to a day, or to a time, or to a particular atmosphere that we perceive to be conducive to worship. People can't worship unless the lights are turned off. You have to turn the the crowd lights off and turn the stage lights on, blare the music, and and, and sing, you know, repeat uh, four words 15 times. And that's how people can worship. People can't worship unless the music is soft and slow. I remember growing up, we, had, we made this differentiation between praise music and worship music. Praise music is the faster Christian music. Worship music is the slower Christian music. Do you know why we said that? Why we say that is because we totally misunderstand. All of it's worship. Whether it's Thanksgiving, it's worship. If it's fast, if it's slow, all of it's worship. It doesn't matter about the style of the song. People can't worship unless you fill in the blank. We always place the emphasis on the wrong things when it comes to worship. And it has always been this way. We're not unique in that way. But Jesus has come to make a new way. The hour is coming, he says, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship 
the Father. The hour is coming where you will be able to worship wherever you are. It will not matter about this mountain or this place or this day or this hour. He goes on to say in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He still isn't directly answering his, her question, is he? He's kind of, as Jesus often does, taking it to a different level. But he's basically telling her that it is inconsequence, inconsequential where the Samaritans worship because they don't even know what they worship. It wouldn't even matter if they went to Jerusalem it wouldn't matter because they don't know what they are worshiping. And how could they? You remember from last week, we talked about the many historians said that the Samaritans rejected the majority of the Old Testament. They only held to Genesis through Deuteronomy as inspired scripture. So they don't have First and Second Samuel. They didn't have the Psalms. They didn't have the Proverbs, the prophets. They didn't have any of these things. How could they know who God is? Moreover, we're told explicitly that God has revealed himself to Israel, that these are his chosen people. Further, they're outside of what one commentator called the stream of revelation. And this ties into what Jesus says about salvation coming from the Jews. It doesn't mean that all Jews are going to be saved. We know that's not true. You just read through the Old Testament and you see over and over again the apostasy of Israel and how God was very displeased with Israel. But Israel knew God. They had Genesis through Malachi. They had the promises. They had the prophets. They had the miracles. They had the signs. They had the covenants. You know what Paul says? They had all of it. They knew what they were worshiping. And yet they were apostates. The Jews were by no means a model of pure worship. They did indeed have the revelation of God, but they did not worship God rightly either. You just go back to chapter 2. The temple was desecrated by man. We had turned it into a place of sale. It was a, it was a merchant's circle. Jesus says, don't do this to my father's house. And he proclaimed himself to be the true temple. The Jews didn't know who they were. They knew who they were worshiping, but they were apostates. The Samaritans had no knowledge of who they worshiped. They were heretics. Church, this teaches us something of zeal and devotion in worship. The Samaritans were devoted to their method of worship. They were undoubtedly zealous and surely had plenty of arguments about proper worship, and yet they didn't even know what they worshiped. The Jews, they knew exactly what they worshipped. They knew who God was. They knew His power. But their hearts were far from Him. So you can't have one or the other. Devotion is never divorced from doctrine in Scripture. Doctrine and devotion are married. They are together. They are one in the same thing. I love this quote from Vody Bauckham. You've heard me read it before. He said, The modern church is producing passionate people filled with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. I watched a video recently. It just I've kind of been obsessed with watching it, if I'm being honest with you, because it's just been so heartbreaking to watch it. 
It was from a conference of a very popular church, a trendy church, and they had very trendy, popular preachers or speakers on the stage. And the title of the video was Classic Christianity, A Conversation About Theology. And these are speakers who are very well known, who have been who have great, incredible influence, especially on social media, and they're asking questions, theological questions, and they ask one individual, what are we saved from? And he sits there, and he makes jokes and laughs and is squirming in his seat. He says, I should have paid attention in Bible college. This is a preacher, a pastor of a church. He doesn't know what we're saved from. And he finally uncomfortably answers, but we're saved from ourselves. Friends, at the end of the age, when you come to the judgment seat, is God going to say you've been saved from yourself? No, we're, we're saved from the wrath of God. Jesus didn't save you from yourself on the cross. He saves you from the wrath of God that is stored up against you because of your sin. And that was the next question. What is sin? No good answer there either. In fact, the person went on to say, we don't want to tell people they're depraved. We don't want to tell people they're going to hell. We need to tell people about the good things that, uh, that, that Jesus could do for their life, what their life could be like with Jesus. And that's going to draw them in. That is verses 1 through 15 right here in this passage. We offer you living water. It's good things. It's wonderful things. Great! I'm tired of carrying this bucket. Yes! That's exactly what that is. But Jesus didn't do that here, does he? He reveals your sin. Because that is so loving of him. To reveal her sin. We have to know what we worship. We have to know the character of God. The nature of God. Or even how he has told us to worship him. I've listened to some of the workshops that these popular worship bands put together. And I've heard them speak of using words and melodies and patterns that move the emotions. The music is designed with making you feel emotional. And if you're not discerning enough, you attribute the emotional experience with true worship. But you can have an emotional experience at a football game. We were watching the Tech game last night. Those fans were having an emotional experience. Many of them were worshiping their team. Many of them were worshiping their, the fun they were having. Uh, I'm not against sports. You know I'm a Cowboys fan. My heart's always broken. But you understand the point. Jesus teaches us something so important here, and that is that knowledge is essential to worship. He says you worship what you don't know. Imagine wives in here, if you got married to your husband and he got to know you up to that point, said, I don't need to know anything else about you for the rest of our lives. Thank you. I know enough. Boy, what a dreamboat. Wow. Uh, you, you clearly love me so much. What's your favorite color? You know, I don't need to know. What's my favorite food? You know, I don't need to know. It's not loving, is it? But how loved do you feel 
when he knows exactly what you would say or think in this situation. He knows exactly what you would like to eat and you wouldn't like. You feel that love. You understand that he loves you. But here, we think with God it's okay to just know just enough about him. I know that he's loving. That's enough. I'll just worship the love of God. But we worship this God who's all loving. He's not, he's, he's not sovereign. He's, he's not just. He's not holy. He's not righteous. Do you know what that is? That's an idol. Because that's not God. That's a false picture of God, church. That's why we study deeply here. It's so that we can worship deeply. That's why we use some of the big theological terms here, because we don't want you to be intimidated by the deeper things. We don't want you to think that theology and doctrine are just for the scholars and the seminarians. It's not. Theology and doctrine, it's for all Christians. Do you know why? Because this book is a book full of theology and doctrine. It's not a book full of platitudes and just well wishes. It is a theological and doctrinal book. But at the end of the day, guess what? Pursuing greater knowledge of God and knowing Him more is meaningless if it does not affect our worship. That was the problem with the Jews, wasn't it? I want you to join me in Malachi chapter 1. It's the book right before Matthew, in case you've never heard of a Malachi in your life. Remember that this book contains the last words from God for some 400 years until John the Baptist arrives. These are the last words of God. So surely God is sending his people off with well wishes, isn't he? Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. Does it sound like God is pleased with the worship that they're bringing him? It sounds like he is furious. He is angry of the worship, the worthless worship that these people who know God are bringing to him. And you might say, well, Matt, he says he's talking to priests. You're right. Aren't you glad that Jacob read from 1 Peter chapter 2 that said that Christians are called a royal priesthood? Aren't you glad that Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 calls us priests in offer in service of God? So what we could say is draw the principles here. 
God's not speaking directly to us, obviously. We don't have animal sacrifices today. But what we draw from this is the principles of offering wrong worship. Offering the worship that we think we can bring God. Verse 10 is just a haymaker to the gut. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you wouldn't offer fire on my altar in vain. What he's saying, shut the doors to the temple. Don't even worship if this is what you're going to bring me. God is so displeased with their worship. It would be better if someone shut the doors. He would rather that offerings not be offered and incense not be burned than to continue on in what they have been bringing him. But yet we have this idea today, anything goes. Whatever you want to bring God. You have a, a, a lame animal who's blind and has three legs. Bring it to God. He loves you unconditionally. It's okay. You bring him the leftovers and the scraps. This is still who God is today, my friends. He still is holy and deserving of our best. God is not pleased by his people having heads full of knowledge and cold hearts. And God is not pleased with worship that is nothing more than going through the motions, mindless, cold, lifeless adherence to the letter of the law. If you go on to read the rest of Malachi, it's clear that the Lord is absolutely furious at what's happening. But then look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place. Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations. How? How is that going to happen when they're bringing you bad sacrifices? How, if their worship is so tainted, how is this going to happen? But did you notice also that he said in every place? Not just in the temple anymore, but in every place. Not just on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, but in every place. Let's go back to John and look at verse 23. The hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The coming of Jesus ushered in a new way for the Father to receive the worship that He both deserves, and amazingly, the worship that He is seeking. When He says the hour is coming, He's looking forward to His finished work on the cross, it's going to usher in a new age. But he says it's also now here. Why? Because she's standing in front of the true temple. Isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 2? He is the temple. Isn't that what Revelation chapter 21 and 22 teach us? That he is the temple. We, we don't need to look for the rebuilding of a third temple, my friends. Jesus is the temple. Read Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus is the temple. And here he is saying the hour is coming and it's now here. He can say that because he's standing right in front of her. What he came to do is bring worshipers to the Father. The Father will be able to receive the worship that he is seeking. And more specifically, he will have the worshipers that he is seeking to worship him. Think about it. Jesus had to go to Samaria so that he could sit by Jacob's well to meet with this woman 
because he was going to make a true worshiper out of her. Isn't that amazing? Everything that went into this interaction to make her a worshiper of the true and living God. Jesus says the Father is seeking a certain kind of people to worship him. You know what that tells us? Is that God cares about his worship. He is seeking a particular kind of people to worship him. So here is Jesus seeking out this woman. What kind of person is he seeking to worship him? He seeks out this Samaritan woman, sexually immoral. She's no name. She's an outcast. She's a heretic. She's an idolater. That's who he was seeking. Why? Because of the work of God was going to be so profound in her heart that she would now be worthy to bring right sacrifices, the sacrifice of her life to the true and living God. How can she bring true worship to God if she's a gross, terrible sinner? Why didn't he say this to Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a great guy. How can she bring true worship to God if she, doesn't, if she worships what she doesn't know and she doesn't seem to understand the spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching her? At least Nicodemus was put together. At least he understood the scriptures. It's not to say that God doesn't save a Nicodemus. But the contrast here is to show us that God is the focal point and no one is outside of the reach of his saving arm. Nobody, not even the Samaritan woman who was quite literally out of his way. She's a heretical adulteress. God is going to transform her into a true worshiper of the living God. That's the God we serve. That's who he is. That's what he's like. So we should never come before him with some kind of pretense like, look at what we did to bring ourselves into the presence of God. Do you know what you did to bring yourself into the presence of God? Is You were thirsty. You were sinful. You were wicked. You were an idolater. And Jesus went out of his way, literally came from heaven to earth to save you and make you a true worshiper. Friends, that's amazing grace. Thinking about that will ignite the flames of worship in your heart. If you ever come to worship and you are cold and lifeless, I guarantee you, it's because you're not thinking about what God has done for you. You're not thinking about the marvelous works of God. When people say, I, I don't know, I didn't, wasn't really feeling the music today. That's fine, it wasn't for you. It was for God. It was for him. That's why we sing the songs that we sing with the truth that they contain is because we're singing to him. They're not, man, did you like that song? That was a great song. That doesn't mean we can't like songs. Of course we like songs. But you understand the point is that it's for him. So here we are with this all-important question before us. What is it mean to worship in spirit and truth. And we could easily spend the next, the rest of the afternoon looking at it, but I want to just bring you right to the point. Because understanding this properly helps us understand how it is that a woman like this, as sinful as she is, how she can be made a true worshiper, how you and I could be made true worshipers. Malachi 1 was about 
God making his name great. Did you catch that? That his name will be great among the nations, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judah, among the nations. And here is Christ, God incarnate, going to Samaria. And he's making a worshiper out of her. He's making the name of God great. Why? How? Well, I believe the most fundamental meaning of spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit and his work. Because the Holy Spirit has to bring you into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit has to regenerate you. He has to make you new. He has to make you a new person. He has to give life to your dead heart. Without that, you can worship a lot of things, but you can't worship God. There's a big discussion as to why I come to that conclusion that we can have if you would like to one day. But the simplest way to say it is that in John chapter 3, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. So that which is born of the flesh worships what the flesh wants to worship. That which is born of the spirit worships what the spirit wants to worship. In the flesh, we cannot truly worship God. In the flesh, we worship what we do not know. In the flesh, we worship the false gods of sex and money and career and fame. That's what we worship. We worship our, our, our desires. We worship our preferences. But when we have been reborn by the Spirit of the living God, we can now worship God. But what about truth? What did Jesus tell us in John chapter 14, verse 6? That he is the way truth, and the life, that he literally is the truth, the truth about God. You remember in John chapter 1, don't you, that he was called the Word, and we said that he is the full expression of what the Father desired to say to the world, and we didn't just make that up, that's from Hebrews chapter 1, that in these final days, God has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus tells us, you cannot come to the Father except through me. That means that we cannot worship the Father unless we're worshiping him in truth. Both the truth as revealed in Christ, the truth as revealed in Scripture. It also means, of course, that we can't just make things up about God and worship that. That would obviously be idolatry. Christ enters the temple in chapter 2 and purifies the temple. Then in chapter 3 of Malachi, it says that he's going to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He's going to purify the sons of Levi, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Who are the sons of Levi? That was the priesthood. What did we say that we are? Priests. We are a royal priesthood. The work of Christ is purifying himself a people so that we can bring him offerings of praise and worship in righteousness. Isn't that amazing? All of scripture teaches us this. It's not just here. It's all of scripture. Purification, sanctification, regeneration. It was all, it's all over the place. And why? It's so that the name of God can be made great among the nations. That means worship. 
so that God can be worshipped. When we come to worship God, we come in the power of the Spirit through the finished work of the Son. And that is what enables us to worship God. What does that mean? Is that non-Christians cannot worship God. If you read through Hebrews, it teaches us that because of the finished work of Christ, we can now be true worshipers. The last thing that I want to point out to you quickly is that there is a so-called seeker-sensitive movement where the service is geared towards drawing people in. But what did Jesus say about who is the seeker in worship? He said the Father is seeking. So if you ever wonder why we gear our services the way that we do, it's because the Father is the seeker. We're a seeker-sensitive church, all right. We want to be sensitive to the one who's truly seeking worship, and that's the Father. Let's stand. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you make true worshipers out of idolaters. We thank you that you are patient with the most sinful, that you are long-suffering. Lord, we ask that you would help us to examine how we worship and who and what we worship, and that you would ignite the flame in our hearts to worship you rightly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.